G'day, my name is Jeff. It's my great privilege to look with you now at God's Word, the Bible, Genesis chapter 20 to 21. We continue our series in the book of Genesis. Can I encourage you to have a Bible open with you, in front of you there, so you can read along with me as I read large chunks of Genesis 20 to 21. Also be helpful for you to have an outline uh, near you so that you can see where we're going and also some other verses in there as well to help us as we think about how to apply the passage to ourselves. Let's pray. We'll ask God for his help. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for freely and graciously giving your promises to Abraham. We thank and praise you for freely and graciously fulfilling your promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in Christ we can be your people, living under your blessing with you forever. Father, please help us as we look at your word today to understand it. Help us to grow in our knowledge and appreciation of your grace and love. Help us to delight in these and to hold fast with genuine faith to Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Over the years, I've seen some bad behaviour from Christians. I've seen Christians steal. I've heard Christians lie. I know of Christians who've defrauded people, ripped them off. I know of Christians who've cheated on their taxes. I've also seen violence among Christians over these years of ministry. I've seen Christians threaten each other. Christians swear at each other dealt with a couple of men who were beating up their wives, dealt with one man who was being beaten up by his wife. In one church that I was looking after for a while, I had to basically break up a fist fight in the elders' meeting. I've seen violence. I know also of numerous cases of Christians involved in sexual immorality, both heterosexual and homosexual. I've told you the story before of one minister in Sydney. He found out that a man in his church was having an affair. Before he had a chance to talk to the man, Sunday came around. It was the Lord's Supper. And the man was there, bold as brass, as if nothing had ever happened, ready to share in the Lord's Supper. The minister felt really uncomfortable, convicted about it. And so he said to the congregation, I'm sorry, we're not going to have the Lord's Supper today because I found out that there's a man here in our church who's having an affair. Now, the minister didn't hear anything from that man, but in the next week, four other men rang him and said, how did you know? I also remember a conversation I had years ago with the Catholic priest here, who was then, here then in Chatswood. Uh, a woman told him that uh, she was having an affair with his assistant, the assistant priest. So he sacked the assistant priest... But then he had calls from seven other women, all saying the same thing. What happened to your assistant? He promised me that if he ever left ministry, he would marry me. Pornography, of course, is rife among Christians. Many Christians I know struggle with the sin of looking at pornography. Some, some don't even struggle anymore. I've worked with one Christian who was convicted for child pornography. And friends, these are just the sins we recognise as sinful. The Christian church is also rife with greed, with worldliness, with faithless anxiety, with 
gossip, with slander. Many, if not most Christians, are vain, discontented, proud, selfish, angry, bitter, judgmental, and gluttonous. I remember back in Bible college, my lecturer talked about all kinds of sinful behaviour he'd seen in ministry, and he said that he got to the point where nothing surprised him. He said, I've learned that anyone is capable of anything. Anyone is capable of anything. Nothing surprises me anymore. When our studies in this book of Genesis, we've come to chapters 20 to 21. And in these chapters, we'll see three more stories about Abraham. Three stories about Abraham. In the first story, Abraham moves to a place called Gerar. That's on the southeastern border of the Promised Land. In Gerar, there was a king. His name was Abimelech. Abraham is worried that Abimelech might kill him to get hold of his wife, Sarah. And so Abraham pretends that Sarah isn't his wife. He says that she's his sister. It's not the first time he's done this, is it? Once again, this king, Abimelech, uh, he takes Sarah into his harem. Now, remember, by the way, Sarah's nearly 90 by this stage. She must have been very impressive. Genesis chapter 20 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Genesis chapter 20 and verse 1. Now, Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Now, remember the context here. God has just promised that Abraham will have a son through Sarah. This time next year you'll have a son. God even came in person to renew the promise. And now Abraham has given Sarah to another man. So, so now how, how can Abraham and Sarah have a child? The, the only child Sarah can have is by Abimelech. This is not just immoral of Abraham. This is not just cowardly. This is a total failure to trust God's promise. Anyway, God mercifully intervenes. He somehow stops Abimelech from having sex with Sarah. He then speaks to Abimelech in a dream and he says, you've got to give Sarah back to Abraham. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She's a married woman. Now, Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you 
and all who belong to you will die. Abraham, uh, Abimelech obviously is upset about this. He confronts Abraham about this ungodly thing that he's done. Abraham gives some pathetic excuses. And Abimelech then gives Abraham permission to live in the land. Abraham prays for him and God answers Abraham's prayer. Pick it up now in verse 14. Verse 14. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offence against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. He's not much of a hero of the faith, Abraham, is he? In fact, Abraham is faithless and cowardly and ungodly. Abraham makes the pagan king Abimelech look positively righteous by comparison. And yet God continues to keep his promises to Abraham. And now, through his sin even, Abraham is now able to live safely in the land. That brings us to the second story. And this story is actually quite a climactic point in the fulfilment of God's promises. Coming straight after Abraham's sin, you get this amazing fulfilment. Abraham is 100 years old. Uh, Sarah is 90. She's long past menopause. menopause. It's, it's impossible for them to conceive. And yet here God does the impossible, keeps his promise. And to her great delight, Sarah has a baby. Chapter 21 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Chapter 21 and verse 1. Now, the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Isaac manages to survive through the dangers of infancy. He makes it to the time of being weaned. In that culture, that's that's about the age of three. Abraham then has a big party for him. But at that point, Ishmael, Abraham's other son, he makes a big mistake. He laughs at Isaac. He he, he mocks him. Sarah won't stand for it. Her her pent-up jealousy and and her resentment against Hagar, it it, it bursts to the surface. And and she insists that Ishmael and his mum, Hagar, they they be sent away. Now, Abraham loves Ishmael. This is his son we're talking about. But reluctantly, Abraham agrees and he sends Hagar and Ishmael off into the wilderness, effectively to die. Verse 8. 
The child grew and was weaned. And on, that, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son, but, but God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I'll make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. Poor Hagar and Ishmael. It's disgusting the way Sarah and Abraham have treated them, especially when God has been so kind to them. But God is merciful. He keeps his promise about Ishmael and they survive. Verse 17. God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Well, that brings us to the third and final story in this section. Now, in this story, we, we once again meet Abimelech. Abimelech kind of is on either side of the story of the birth of Isaac. Uh, Abimelech realises that God is blessing Abraham. And so he asks him for a treaty. Abraham agrees. There's a, a matter of a well of water that there's been a disagreement about, but with a bit of haggling between them, they manage to sort out the issue. They enter a treaty. And now by the end of this story, Abraham is living safely in the land. He's at peace in the land. He's safe in the land with his heir, Isaac. God's promises, they're well on the way to coming true. Verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now, Swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness I have shown you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock and Abimelech asked Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you've set apart by themselves? He replied, accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba because the, the two men swore an oath there. 
After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God, and Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Now again, Abraham isn't exactly a pillar of faith here. He's getting hold of the promised land by making treaties with the inhabitants. Later on, Israel are going to be strictly forbidden from doing the same thing. All right. Can you see what's here in our chapters today? Three stories. First story, Abraham and Abimelech. Abraham passes off his wife as his sister. Second story, the birth of Isaac. Sarah jealously insists that Abraham send Hagar and Ishmael away to die. And then third story, Abraham and Abimelech again, where they haggle a treaty with each other. We've seen some significant developments in God's promises here, haven't we? Abraham now has his promised son, and he's he's living safely in the promised land. God's promises are coming true, but, but Abraham and Sarah... They don't come out looking good, do they? They are faithless, they are cruel, they're selfish and grasping and worldly and sexually immoral. In fact, you could almost say the people around them, Abimelech, Ishmael, the people around them who don't know God are more righteous than they are. It's a big contrast, this passage. God is faithfully keeping his promises while Abraham and Sarah, they're acting, well, let's face it, they're acting abominably. And so put it together, and I think the point of this story is pretty clear. God hasn't made his promises to Abraham and Sarah because of how good they are. Abraham and Sarah... They haven't earned God's blessing. God has given them his promises out of sheer grace. Well, as we've seen over and over again, God's promises to Abraham are fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, Jesus came to this world. He lived and died and rose again to fulfill God's promises to Abraham. He came to make us God's people in God's place under his blessing forever, just as God promised Abraham. God's promises are magnificently fulfilled in Jesus. But friends, sadly, we're not that different to Abraham. Like Abraham, we we keep on falling, keep on failing. Maybe you've heard the story of the young balloon. One day he decided to to get into bed with his mum and dad balloon, but there wasn't enough room in the bed. So while his mum and dad are asleep, he he unties their knots and lets some air out of them. He then does the same to himself until they can all fit into the bed together. Next morning, his dad is very angry. He says, son, you've been really naughty. I'm so disappointed. He says, you've let me down, you've let your mum down, and you've let yourself down. We're a bit like that, aren't we? We keep on failing. We let other people down, we let ourselves down with with big sins, obvious sins, with with little sins, with acceptable sins, with sins that we're ashamed of. Like Abraham, we have a great God who has kept great promises in Jesus, but like Abraham, we are sinful. In fact, 
fact, too often we make the, the non-Christians around us seem godly by comparison. So what should we do? How, how do we apply this passage to ourselves? How do we think about God's grace and our sin? Well, as you can see from your outline, there are three things. There are three things. And, and they're all about being genuine, being, being real, being sincere, being fair income. First, first, we need to be genuine about Jesus. Second, we need to be genuine about our sin. And third, we need to be genuine about repentance. See where we're going? Genuine about Jesus, about sin, and about repentance. Let's have a look at each point in turn. So application point number one, let's start. Uh, we need to be genuine about Jesus. Do you know what, friends? This, this passage, it pretty much reveals the essence of Christianity. We cannot save ourselves. Like Abraham, we are sinners. We've never perfectly loved God. We've never perfectly loved our neighbour. We deserve nothing from God but his anger and judgment. And yet, out of his sheer grace and love, God gave Jesus to live, die and rise again for us. The glorious news of the gospel is this. God justifies the ungodly. And so, friends, here's the application. We must not try to save ourselves. As we saw last week, we need to give up on any notion of do-it-yourself salvation. We mustn't try to get ourselves right with God. We need to genuinely, sincerely rely on Jesus for our salvation. We need what the Bible calls faith. Have a look uh, on your outline there at the passage that I've put from Romans chapter 4. The Apostle Paul's talking about Abraham and he, he's talking about what we can learn from Abraham. Can you see it on your outline there from Romans 4? What then should we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not created as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, who doesn't try to save themselves, who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. That's what you can learn from Abraham. Like Abraham, we are sinners. We are ungodly. We cannot save ourselves. And the fact of the matter is, if we try, we just get in God's way. Have you ever seen someone rescued from the surf? Maybe you've watched Bondi Rescue or something like that. Someone's caught in a rip or something. They, they, they can't get out. What often happens is the lifesaver will make their way out to the person, but the person is panicking. They're trying desperately to save themselves and they're kicking and, and, and it makes it impossible for the lifesaver to rescue them. And so what the lifesaver has to do, they have to get them to stop struggling, to stop trying to save themselves, to, to, to let the expert do the rescuing. Friends, it's the same for us. We need to stop pretending that we can save ourselves, stop struggling to save ourselves, stop trying to be good enough for God. Instead, we need to genuinely rely on Jesus who saves, what did Abraham learn? Who saves the ungodly. Well, that brings us to point number two, application point number two. We need to be genuine about our sin. Most people, most people think that being a Christian means being good. But the fact is, they're not good. 
And, and so what do they do? They fudge it. They, they, they pretend to be good. We all do it, but of course there's the famous car park miracle where the, the family are arguing and fighting all Sunday morning, but they arrive in the church car park and it's a miracle. Suddenly they're all pious and godly. I mean, way too often we, we don't just dress ourselves in our Sunday best, but we, we put on our Sunday best. We, we, we Christians, we, we, we minimise our sin, we, we justify our sin, we excuse our sin, we hide our sin away, we let it fester away in the dark, and, and we pretend. But friends, it's all built on a false view of what a Christian is. The, the Christian message is that God saves sinners, so we don't have to fudge it we don't have to pretend we don't have to put on a show of being righteous if we know ourselves saved by grace through jesus we can honestly admit our sin without anger without defensiveness without wounded pride we can be genuine about sin uh, tim keller puts this really well really nicely i think in his book the prodigal god he says this i've got this on your outline he says the gospel creates a gentle sense of irony we find a lot to laugh at, starting with our own weaknesses. They don't threaten us anymore because our ultimate worth is not based on our record or performance. Genuine about Jesus, genuine about sin. That brings us to our third and final point, third and final application point, point number three. We need to be genuine about repentance. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, God justifies the ungodly, but God doesn't save us so we can go on in a life of sin. God saves us so we'll turn away from sin and live for him. God saves us so that we will repent. It's like the lifesaver. The lifesaver doesn't save you so you can jump straight back in the rip and float away out to sea. No, no, no. The lifesaver saves you so you can be safe on the beach. The Bible says this. I've put it on your outline from Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us. God's grace teaches us. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good friends it's not good enough to just say i'm a saved sinner so now i can sin as much as i want it's not good enough to excuse our sin it's not good enough to justify our sin it's not good enough to just go on in our sin it's not good enough to give up the struggle jesus died to redeem you from your sin to purify you so that you live for him so you are eager to do what is good so you walk in the good works that he has prepared for you god's salvation demands genuine repentance Friends, like Abraham, we are sinners who are loved by a gracious, faithful God. So let's be real about it. Let's be genuine, genuine in our faith in Jesus, genuine in admitting our sin, but also genuine in turning away from it. Let's pray. A gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your extraordinary and wonderful grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has lived and died and risen again so that we can be your people living with you forever 
under your blessing, we acknowledge this is certainly not given to us because we are good. We acknowledge that we are sinners who have never perfectly loved you, have never really loved our neighbour as ourselves. And so, Father, we pray that you'll please forgive us, please cleanse us, please help us to trust Jesus and never, ever let go of him. And please do help us in response to your love and salvation to delight in you and to, to long to live for you, to turn away from sin and live in a way that is pleasing to you. Strengthen us by your spirit to do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.